Then said another, surely not in vain, my substance from the common earth was tame. That he who subtly wrought me into shape should stamp me back to common earth again. Another said, why ne'er a peevish boy would break the bowl from which he drank in joy. Shall he that made the vessel in pure love and fancy in an after rage destroy? None answered this, but after silence spake a vessel of a more ungainly make. They sneer at me for leaning all awry. What did the hand then of the potter shake? Said one, folks of a surely tapster tell, and daub his visage with the smoke of hell. They talk of some strict testing of us, pish, He's a good fellow, and twill all be well. Then said another with a long-drawn sigh, My clay with long oblivion is gone dry, But fill me with the old familiar juice, Methinks I might recover by and by. So while the vessels one by one were speaking, one spied the little crescent all were seeking. And then they jogged each other, brother, brother, hark to the porter's shoulder, not a creaking. Ah, with the grape my fading life provide, and wash my body whence the life has died. And in a winding sheet of vine leaf wrapped, so bury me by some sweet garden side. That even my buried ashes such a snare of perfume shall fling up into the air. As not a true believer passing by, but shall be overtaken unaware. Indeed, the idols I have loved so long have done my credit in men's eye much wrong, have drowned my honor in a shallow cup and sold my reputation for a song. Indeed, indeed, repentance oft before I swore, but was I sober when I swore? And then and then came spring, and rose in hand, my threadbare penitence up pieces tore. And much as wine has played the infidel, 
and robbed me of my robe of honor. Well, I often wonder what the vintners buy, one half so precious as the goods they sell. Alas, that spring should vanish with the rose, that youth's sweet-scented manuscript should close. The nightingale that in the branches sang, ah, whence and whither flown again, who knows? Ah, love, could thou and I with fate conspire? To grasp this sorry scheme of things entire. Would not we shatter it to bits and then remold it nearer to the heart's desire? Ah, moon of my delight, who knowst no wane? The moon of heaven is rising once again. How oft hereafter rising shall she look through this same garden after me in vain. And when thyself with shining foot shall pass Among the guests star-scattered on the grass And in thy joyous errand reach the spot Where I made one turn down an empty glass The meaning of that last um, stanza where I made one I never really understood it I always thought I, I was one I was one of those but made one means he achieved oneness that's how they describe it where I made one don't you just like that I made one <laughs> it's not exactly how it, you would say it in that those words but <laughs> the spot where I was God realized nothing is left okay any comments or questions or thoughts? This is our last round on this. All right, I'll just start with 61. I'll start at the actual beginning of the class. And we'll go on. You find it now. I just have to say, and I hope you all feel the same way, this has been so delightful to read this book. Just, just, and I thank you all for um, wanting to have a class or whoever suggested it because it's just been really wonderful. Okay, so number 61. Then said another, Surely not in vain my substance from the common earth was ta'en, that he who subtly wrought me into shape should stamp me back to common earth again. Master makes an interesting comment here because even the phrase, the life would be in vain, implies that there was some meaning that you didn't achieve. It's just sort of a subtle nuance there. Anyway, it's, this is the question of, is there some conscious purpose to our lives? Is it possible that we could have just been made for no reason at all just to go back into the earth as ashes to ashes, dust to dust? Could that possibly be true? And so Master and Omar Khayyam are saying here that we come from consciousness. It's just not possible for us to ever become unconscious. It's a very um, 
it's a very astonishing thing to contemplate. I know for me it had a huge effect of putting me on the spiritual path because there's always that part of us, that, that the, the subconscious pulling part of us keeps thinking that at some point I won't really have to deal with things because I'll just lose consciousness of them. I mean, that we'd still try to solve our problems by going, becoming unconscious, by going to sleep, by being unaware, by going into a state of denial, whatever you want to call it. And, and, but, but you have to actually just appreciate that you will always be conscious. You will always be yourself. Even if you fall asleep or go into a stupor or, or uh, torture yourself with drugs or go crazy, people go crazy in response to divine understanding. Swamiji says, in fact, that being crazy, I mean certifiably out of touch with the reality as we know it, such as it is, um, is, a, is an inevitable stage on the soul's journey towards self-realization. Because he said there comes a point where you begin to realize what you're really going to have to do. You know, that there's just that realization that I'm really not going to be able to blame others anymore. I'm really not going to be able to go through the various stages. The, the, the shudra stage, the lowest stage of awareness, is just the stage where you're just going to blot everything out and you're not going to deal with it. And then finally you become a vaisha, you become interested enough in putting out energy as long as there's something in it for me. And you have this thought form that if I can just get everything in my world to behave in the way I want it to, then I won't suffer so much. And we, we play this out in our relationships with each other just continuously. We have all kinds of ways of rationalizing about it. It really is, is that if you just behave differently, then I would feel better. Right? All of us have been through it a thousand times. And, and we, well, nowadays, the whole of modern psychology and most of what they teach you about relationships is that. It's that you've got to express your needs, you've got to say what you want, you've really got to stand up for yourself, which... It's not completely stupid teaching, but anybody who's actually successful in a relationship really realizes it's mostly stupid teaching because it's all based on that Vaisha thought that if I can just get you to behave in the way I need you to behave, then I will feel better. But then we come into the Kshatriya stage where we realize that the real battle has nothing to do with anything going on outside of me. The battle is me with me which is my inclination to think that I have to make the world behave a certain way so that I can feel fine. But that's a, that's a really huge battle to just not attribute our suffering to external causes. I remember a, a couple that was married for a very brief period of time and uh, he had just enormous numbers of unexamined emotional issues. And in fact, so did she. But whenever she would do certain things, it would trigger in him you know, this life and past life memories of enormous suffering. And so he would believe that when she did certain things, it caused him this, this magnitude of grief, which was so intense that he could hardly bear it. And as a result, they had an extremely short-lived and rather tumultuous relationship that just completely died away because he had no concept of what was really causing him suffering. And so we sort of reach at the point on the, a certain point in our development where we have to become kshatriyas, which is we have to become warriors. That's what kshatriya means. You'll know a lot more about kshatriyas after the next series. But a kshatriya is a warrior, and a true kshatriya does battle with delusion within himself. And when we get to the edge of that kshatriya stage and begin to realize that nothing that happens to us is anybody's fault but our own, 
And no one is ever going to behave well enough to make us feel good unless we ourselves make ourselves feel good. Then a lot of times people go crazy right there. They just look at it and they say, no, thank you. And they just go off into some fantasy world of their own. You know, I mean, you know, walk down the street talking to people who aren't there kind of fantasy world or just living in, in madness in, in mental hospitals. There's lots of reasons why people go into mental hospitals, but one of them is just this. It's really existential. On some level, it's like, I don't want this to be true, so therefore it isn't true, so I'm just going to hide for it for who knows how many incarnations until finally I accept the magnitude of the task in front of me and I really get to work on it. Well, this was all coming from the fact that sooner or later, no matter what we do, no matter how we tantrum, no matter how unwilling we are, no matter how, you know, uh, peeved we are, no matter how right we are about everybody else's behavior, at some point, it all has to be put down and we just have to straighten ourselves out without reference to anyone else. And what I was starting to say is, and there's absolutely no escape from it. Because there's never a point at which we will actually become unconscious. We will always be living with inside, inside our own awareness until we dissolve it into the sea. I can recall, it was, this was very early, it was when I was 18 maybe 19, but just right at the very, very beginning of my exposure to Eastern teachings. And I just remember sort of lying in my bed, staring at the ceiling, and my feeling about that night is that I was awake all night. I doubt if I was, really, but that was the sense of it. I, I, was, I was concerned all night long, asleep or awake, about the question of whether there was any escape. And I just projected myself into every situation I could think of, young, old, you know, happy in my life, destitute, wealthy, traveling to other planets, just everything I could think of, lives in the past, lives in the future, you know, being a worm, being an angel, everything I could think of. But every single place I projected myself, of course, there was the self. And as long as there was the self, the problem was going to be the same, which is if that self was discontent, or, or vulnerable to any kind of suffering, I was going to suffer. And that there was no alternative but to straighten that self out. I mean, I would like to say that I've succeeded. I certainly haven't, but I certainly did figure out that there was no alternative to it. And of course, like everyone, I uh, sometimes still wish there was, really, really wish there was, but there isn't. Because we come from consciousness. We are consciousness. We have no choice but that. I mean, that's what this stanza is talking to us about. It's a really marvelous stanza. But uh, the, in, in the commentary, if you haven't read it carefully, Master talks about how consciousness evolves from the rocks to the plants to the animals. And he, he writes so poetically. With, he makes this very interesting statement. He said, In the rocks and the soil, God sleeps. He refines man, matter to its greatest beauty in gold, silver, other minerals, and gems. Thus, even in matter, he hints at the possibility of perfection. Isn't that an interesting statement? You know, you think about diamonds and uh, oh, just all the gemstones, rubies and aquamarines and opals and just how gorgeous they are. And it's just the, the thought of God hinting at the possibility of perfection through gemstones. And it's an interesting fact that precious metals and gems have always been you know, considered uh, the source of enormous wealth. And even more than that, they have magnetic properties. The whole science of astrology is actually um, one of the mitigating uh, formulas for the science of astrology is gemstones and precious metals. 
with bangles and, and stones that you wear and everything. And the science of astrology is closely allied to the science of yoga. Isn't it just sort of interesting how it all comes together? And that there's all that inherent power. That's the real reason why gemstones and silver and, and precious metals have always been valuable is because there's energy there. There's power. So kings would surround themselves and wear all those stones because they had magnetic force. That's what gave them their value. It wasn't just an agreed-upon reality. It was an actual attunement. And here Master writes, you know, they're the most perfect things that God makes. It was just an interesting statement. And then he talks about how the different animals um, exhibit different qualities of the divine. It's all so dear. I was remembering reading all of that. I think I talked about this in this class not too long ago already. But when Swami talked about how dogs are just people, remember I was referring to that? And I was just looking, walking down the street the other day, and there, was, there were plants and there were animals where I was walking. And I, I was just trying to really feel it as an unbroken continuum through human consciousness. I mean, it, it isn't in the sense that we don't actually evolve from those animals, but we evolve through those stages. And so each one of them is just uh, the beginning form of God-realization. There's, there's no point at which it isn't connected, ultimately, to the self-realized master. This is very interesting to think about. All of that is, you know, in very, uh, very condensed form included in these quatrains because Omar Khayyam would see that. He was looking at that reality with his self-realization and then he would write, pen this quatrain that, that, was the, that held within it the secret of this extraordinary state of realization. So it's not merely, because oh, you know, some people um, write uh, poetry or songs that are, are they're, they're writing down words, they're, they're, they're looking at it from below and trying to describe it. They're not in the experience trying to put it back into words. So they'll, they'll write words, and they might even be nice words, but they don't have power. Whereas here, there's so much power in these words because he actually perceived what he was writing and then he put it down to words, like the Samadhi poem we have. So that's why reading these over and over again just inherently um, awakens that awareness within us. 62 says, Another said, Why ne'er a peevish boy would break the bowl from which he drank in joy? Shall he that made the vessel in pure love and fancy in an after-rage, destroy. And so in this, he's talking about um, how God loves us. Even normal people respond kindly to the things they love. How can we imagine that God would not? And Omar Khayyam is, is touching a, a terrible delusion that people have, which is that they create God after their own image. And if people are jealous and cruel and vindictive and unforgiving toward themselves or others, they immediately project onto the divine those same qualities. And you must be very careful about that because you may, might think that you're not inclined that way. But every time you do something that makes you feel like God must not be pleased with me or I, I don't want to go to church, I'm afraid to meditate, I don't want to sit in front of the altar because in some way there's some inner sense of shame that you're projecting that the infinite will have you've bought into that same reality. You have decided that God is, is as unforgiving as you are. And it's a very important thing not to get caught in that. He also says in the commentary, which is really important, um, that the karmic law is not cruel.
that be, what we're saying here is that sometimes we feel that that God is acting in a rage to hurt us. But what we have to stand back and realize that the karmic law is impersonal, but it's also actually on our side. It's a very hard thing to appreciate because the end point of all our karmic experiences is to free us from all suffering. And so there's not one thing that happens to us as a result of our life in this world that isn't designed eventually to bring us to self-realization. So even if on the surface of things it seems to be unfair, unkind, things aren't treating us correctly, again, any hint of that inner feeling that somehow life is not doing me doing the right thing for me is not accepting the role of the kshatriya. That's the battle that we have to fight. It's not that we have to fight against those conditions. It's that we have to fight against any thought within us that says, you are responsible for my suffering or this suffering isn't fair. Uh, many times through this writing, Master says again and again, we look at the karmic law which we ourselves set in motion and we hold someone else responsible. And how seldom we are willing to really say, but of course this must be exactly right for me. I did this and therefore it's coming back to me. And also to welcome it. I remember when we were in the midst of that horrible period here with the Bertolucci lawsuit. And right in the middle of it somewhere, Swami went to Hawaii for a little while. And uh, I think just before he left or just after he got to Hawaii, he was meditating deeply and just asking Divine Mother why she was doing this to him. And, and the thought came to him that you, you really must accept that whatever comes to you is coming from Divine Mother. And he was very proud of himself for having, you know, sort of come to the point where you have to accept it. But then he wrote us a letter, I think, or called, and he said, it's nothing to accept it. He said, you have to love it. To accept it is still just saying, well, you know, I will accept this because you're insisting. If you love it, it's because you've accepted, you, you've understood this is a gift from God to make you free. I mean, if God gives you something to make you free, why would you not love it? You have to ask yourself that question. And every single thing that happens to you, for this hour was I born, this is a gift from God, especially all the difficult things. Swamiji joked with us once, when we were just sitting around one afternoon, and, he, and oh, some people had been really um, being very unkind to him. And he jokingly said, he said, really, my enemies are my much better friends because they're helping resolve all my bad karma. He says, you all are just helping me use up all my good karma. <laughs> of course, he was kidding. But there is something very true in that. Well, there's my best friend, you know, the one who's making my life miserable. Because through that, I will become free because I will sufficiently repeatedly have to face this challenge and master myself. So why should I do, to accept is not enough. It's very interesting, isn't it? So anyway, so this is, this is the poetic way of saying, if God made us, he's not really doing it in a rage. He must be doing it for good cause. Then comes 63. I love this part. None answered this. <laughs> so he makes this statement, you know, that God would certainly not do this unkindly. None answered this. They're all sort of chatting about these things. But after silence, spake a vessel of a more ungainly make. They sneer at me for leaning all awry. What? Did the hand then of the potter shake? 
Now this is sort of the person responding and just the way we've talked about has the way Master writes it is that, uh, did, you know, God made me wrong. Something happened to me. And Master talks in here about people um, really are, people seldom look for hidden causes, is how he put it, behind the occurrences in their lives. They cannot understand why they suffer. And then he put it, I love this line, their suffering itself draws a thick curtain over their mind, obscuring its causes. Isn't that interesting? It was a very sort of, touching statement when you realize that that once once we fall into those dark states of delusion it becomes very very difficult in those moments even to think clearly that's why master really warns us you know don't make decisions when you're in moods whenever you feel yourself caught up at all in any kind of a, a whirlwind of energy and see that the, the trouble is once those come into us we tend to think finally now I'm seeing things clearly but it's it's just such a um, it's such a serious and a dangerous trap to allow ourselves to act as if we were sensible when we're actually influenced by strong emotion. I mean, the, the single most useful thing you can learn in your life is to recognize when those emotions are influencing you. Now, it's not enough just to suppress them. Because when you suppress them, you're not free of them either. In fact, it's even worse because then you don't even know what's happening. But if you feel them, if you allow yourself to feel them and allow yourself to sort of see what the influence is, but at the same time keep a part of yourself just a little bit distance and realize I'm not making any sense right now because I'm caught up in one of these whirlwinds of wrong feeling. Master says um, that, uh, I just want to go back to here, it's like, he, he says the phrase, you know, don't ever pity yourself. We always, we just get into these habit patterns that are just so deadly for us. But you see why you go crazy in the face of this. Because we just take away all the margin. The spiritual path is not for weaklings. The spiritual path is really for heroes. But happiness is really for heroes. You have to be heroic if you're really going to be free. And of course, many people settle for less. We've made the decision in our lives that we're not going to. And it's a little bit hard, and he mentions this in a number of places. Once you've really, even for a moment, either tasted it yourself or imagined it, just what it could feel like to really not be bound by these ego limitations anymore, it's very hard to settle for them again. But then they come up and all they're tempting, and we say, oh, God's done something to me, or you've done something to me. And if you just understood better, you would behave differently. Or you don't understand me. Let me explain me to you, and then you can respond differently to me. Now, believe me, you can have all those same conversations. Because it does help to explain yourself to people, and it does help to have people explain themselves to you, and it does help to be honest in your reactions. But there's, there's a world of difference between speaking them with calm detachment and acceptance of karmic responsibility and any sense of blame, the difference between a kshatriya and a vaisha. If there's any selfish tinge to it, it's just a killer. And if there isn't, really, you can talk about anything. And it becomes very interesting and enlightening. And, and you know, people who are close to you have an absolute nose for it. You know, you're not talking about me, you're just talking about you. Okay, back to number 64. Said one, Folks of a surly tapster talk and daub his visage with, visage with the smoke of hell. 
They talk of some strict testing of us. Pish! <laughs> He's a good fellow, and all will be well. Don't you love that one? This one is just saying, again, some people think of God as wrathful, <coughs> and that he really just does this to torture us. They make of God almost the devil. And this is simply not true. That once we get attuned to the spirit, it's Master called it, you know, the divine, the spiritual path is the funeral of all sorrows. St. Teresa said, a sad saint is a sad saint indeed. But he also was saying that we have to suspend all our ideas of things. He, he, he puts it so beautifully in the commentary. He said, you have to suspend all your intellectual ideas of what the spirit is like. And you have to just be willing to receive that consciousness into yourself. It's not something that you can just think about. Because if you try to add up all the pieces, you really look around at this world. My, uh, and many of you know my father has had Alzheimer's or something like it for the last several years and since my mother died. And he's, he's very well taken care of. And I haven't really visited him very often. And I don't even know if this is true yet, but my sister called in the the place where he's living is talking now about putting him into, into hospice care, which means that obviously his life is ending. It, I was, it was so interesting to me. I was close to my father when I was growing up. I haven't been close to him as an adult. I've, I've spent a tremendous amount of time, you know, relating to him and thinking about it and just feeling very detached. As soon as David mentioned hospice in association with my father, I was amazed what happened to my heart. I was just, it was just so interesting to watch it. You know, I haven't been involved with him since I was 18 years old, really, except in the most, um, you know, just as a dutiful daughter and appreciative of all the very loving and positive energy. I mean, he was a good father. But I, I just, I left home. I never looked back. But all of a sudden, the thought that he was dying, and I thought of that story in the autobiography of a yogi, of Lahiri Mahashaya, isn't it? When the message is delivered that the, that the sands of time are running out and that, and that he shuddered a little bit. And then he went very, very austere before he came out of it. And then he writes, even a master, you know, confronted with having to leave his own body. And I thought, well, this isn't myself who's dying, but there's something so... Um, there's so much more going on than we realize. That was just what I was observing. We, we have all these ideas in our head, and we get very confused by all the stories that we can spin, especially if we're clever. And sometimes we just miss. There's just this very sort of deep feeling level on which these life experiences take place. And there's something so extraordinary about the way the karma of this life is all woven together. It, it, was, it was very moving to me. To just even to observe how uh, the tapestry of life is the only thing I can think of to put it. And that's one of the uh, uh, things that is, is talked about in here. It's just how uh, how beautiful creation really is. And it, I, I sort of say that in an odd sort of way because I've always been extremely conscious of how unbeautiful creation is. I just have never... Um, I've always thought it was a dirty trick from when I was really small. And, and it never, life on this planet never looked like such a good deal to me. It just, there it was, and we had to try to figure it out. I wasn't dark, I was quite cheerful. 
but I wasn't attracted to what was going on. And then I would hear people say, oh, you know, it's just such a beautiful world. And I would always think, oh, you know, we don't live on the same planet, obviously. But there's many quatrains here, and there's some coming a little bit later, where Master addresses this very issue. And he, what he's talking about is, there's a stage on the spiritual path which is called vairagya. And vairagya is defined as a disinclination for the things of this world. And it's, and it's necessary as you progress spiritually. It's not just a question of renouncing them with your will, but you, ha you develop an, an inward disinclination. And of course, many of us have a profound disinclination for many of the things of this world. You know, there's just many things that other people are attracted to that we have no interest in. But vairagya alone is not enough. You have to, it's like we were talking about, you have to go through that emptiness of nirvana into the bliss on the other side. You have to go through that disinclination of vairagya to the realization that it's all divine and what difference does it make? Uh, divine. And, and that it really is, it isn't beautiful, but the creator behind it made such a beautiful story that there's beauty is being expressed because it's infinite. It's the infinite Lord everywhere. That doesn't mean that this child dying and you know the, this person's old age and my father's Alzheimer's is a beautiful thing in itself. But the way that the divine works with all of us to help us to come into the light, that's where the beauty comes from. It's a very, it's a very tricky line. I remember, and I've told you all this story, but it, it feels apt in this instant of when we were in India and Swami Kriyananda met Swami Chidananda. Swami Chidananda is the head of Swami Shivananda's whole worldwide work. It's, he has a huge position in this huge work that's all over the world for Swami, the line of Swami Shivananda. And Swami Kriyananda and Swami Chidananda are contemporaries. They're both direct disciples of a great master. They both have essentially the same position in the organizations um, that Kriyananda founded. Chidananda inherited it. But they're just so much alike. And when we were in Rishikesh, uh, the last time we were in India, which was a number of years ago now, the two of them met and all of us got to sit there and watch it. And they had this exchange at the beginning in which they each inquired how the other's worldwide mission was going. How is... Chidananda smiled at Swami with his impish grin and he said, in the, how, is, how is Ananda World Brotherhood Village? <laughs> and Swami just said, fine. And then he said to Chidananda, and how is the International Divine Life Society? Chidananda said, fine. And then the two of them said, ha, 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 ha. Just like that, just so much from their hearts. And they smiled, and then for some reason all the rest of us just went, ha, 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 ha. We didn't know what we were laughing at. But there was such a, a distinct sense, and I've told you, later I asked Swamiji, I, I described to him how that looked to me. It was just sort of like, it was, it was soul to soul saying, and how is your little divine Leela on this silly little planet gone? Oh, it's gone very well. And how is yours gone? Oh, it's been great. You know, this whole big thing that we did, what difference does it make? The, both of them from their perspective, realizing that what everybody else saw is their life work. It wasn't their life work at all. Their life work was that delightful chuckle when they related to it. Because through it, they had both become free to such an extraordinary degree. But you see, that's the other side of it. That's the side of it where you look back at all this persecution. Just what Swami said, it's not enough to have accepted what happens. You have to really love it. And I don't just mean love it with your teeth gritted. 
I mean like spontaneously, actually. I wouldn't change a thing. It's been wonderful. You know? It's very important. I mean, that's more than important. It's everything. Because how could God have made a mistake? How could he have given you anything? Any circumstance, any mental characteristic, even. I mean, it's not just circumstances. It's all your mental demons. How could he have given you one of those? How could there be one of them that wasn't put there specifically? Because it has a role to play to take you to God. Very interesting way to look at it. Oh, gratitude. Yeah, of course. Okay, number 65. Then said, another, then said another with a long drawn sigh, My clay with long oblivion is gone dry, But fill me with the old familiar juice, Methinks I might recover by and by. I made a note here many years ago, Swamiji made this statement, which is, he was half, half joking, but it was also true. He said, after devotion to God, the second most important characteristic on the spiritual path is a sense of humor. He said a sense of humor will get really, first love God and then after that learn to laugh and learn to laugh at yourself. Because a sense of humor just allows you that little bit of ability to stand back and see it in perspective. I asked Swamiji once, you know, where humor came from because some, he asked some perfectly reasonable question and I gave a perfectly absurd answer without any pre- uh, pre-contemplation it just popped out of my mouth and so I asked him I said where does humor come from and his answer was interesting he said to a certain extent it's a very spiritual quality because and I don't mean you have to be witty it's more that you have to have an, a sense of humor to be able to enjoy humor is it's the capacity to just stand back and see things in a different proportion to not be so involved and so attached that you can't realize uh, what what's really going on and so it's a it is a very positive quality and so I sort of feel Master describes this particular character as also having this sort of, a sort of doughty courage you know it's been tough I've really gone off way off I, I had, there's nothing left of the divine wine in me I'm just an empty husk of of material things the clay with long oblivion has gone dry meaning that my ego has become so invested in matter that I've become oblivious to the divine and I don't remember anything of my spiritual nature at all anymore. But wait a minute. Just give me a little bit. Just open me up a little bit, and I think I can pull it back together again. And that's just a great spirit to have. And he says it with that sort of like sense of humor. And a lot of times in our lives, I mean, maybe it's months or years, maybe it's just a week, maybe it's a day, where we've just fallen into a state of oblivion, and we're just completely dry. But wait a minute, Lord, just... Show me the light again, and I'm going to do it. I can recover from this. It's very interesting over the years with Ananda, because now it's been so many years that people will become very enthusiastic, and then they'll just disappear. And then they'll reappear five years, six years, 10, 20, 25 years later sometimes. You know, just never having forgotten. And sometimes then sort of try it again. Swami talks in the path about one of Master's dear disciples, um, Mr. Oliver, I can't remember now what his first name was, but Mr. Oliver, remember? And in the past, Swami, uh, Mr. Oliver speaks to Master and says, I saw you when you spoke in uh, Symphony Hall in Boston. He said there were 2,500 people there, and I was way back in the balcony. But somehow I felt like you were delivering your entire lecture to me. Master said, I remember. 
right? And and Mr. Oliver said, well, you know, and he said, and I, I, um, he said, I life took me in other directions. He said, but I always remembered you, and I always wondered where you were and what you were doing. And of course, Master remembered him without ever letting go. And then, t- after twenty-five years from that, he showed up and became a disciple. And Master said he had clear sailing, is how he described it. Right? Isn't that interesting? So it's it's sort of like we also have to. Um, uh, just not give up. Because remember, how can we give up? There's no way to give up at all because we, we come from God and it's just going to work itself out. That all works together. It's like you've become a dried up old husk. Then just throw yourself in a pool somewhere. <laughs> and we all do, day after day. I mean, on the spiritual path. I mean, many times over these years, I would just realize that somehow, you know, I just lost, I'd lost some piece of it. And at first, you just are so distressed. Oh, this, oh, that. And then you just figure, you know, what is the point of lamenting this? I was talking to someone just recently, um, and she was saying, talking about the changes that she was trying to make in her life, even though at this stage in my life, she said, I'm making all these changes, even though I'm so old. I don't think she was even as old as I am. But I said, well, look, you really, if you don't make these changes now, you're just going to be born with those characteristics. I know I talked about this in, in context of another person recently. But you're just going to be born. Like there's no, if you have those qualities and you don't want to have them, it doesn't matter if you're 99 and it's your last day in that body. Make an effort to end it then because nothing is going to happen when you die except that your body's going to be small and you're going to be exactly the same. So there's no such thing as being too old to make an effort because there is no age. In fact, better to make even a little tiny effort while you can still remember it. Otherwise, you get born in that body and you're so busy trying to you know, find your mouth with the spoon that it takes you a long time to figure out. Or you have that characteristic so strong in you that you magnetize it to you in a horrible way. So just, who cares how old you are and how futile the effort is? Just keep going. There's this, I read this odd couple, about this odd couple, um, who'd made a study of what caused Alzheimer's and they really didn't, they were, they were research scientists of some sort. It was, I just, it was just an odd film, so I don't even remember where. But they, they knew that one of the secrets to keeping uh, any kind of dementia at bay was to keep um, learning new things and thus keep the, the brain growing. So they had this whole plan, you know, they learned French at 60, they learned to, to, do, to do watercolors at 65, and at 70 they took up oil painting, and at 75 they started doing sculpture, and they just had all these different things. It was very interesting to just sort of see. They were just like seeing how far they could uh, use the brain and what would be the results of that, and they were doing it in a semi-scientific manner. I think that's a wonderful way to think about ourselves spiritually. Master tells that story about the woman that he met when she was in her 80s. She was in her 80s when she discovered Master in the spiritual path, and Master said she became liberated. Because as soon as she met him and realized what the potential was, she just thought of nothing else. And she only had a few years, but she just put all her energy behind it. And so maybe you only have a few weeks or a few years to change some lifelong characteristic. Well, you might as well start now. It's sort of like getting an advanced placement class before you go to college. You know, you might as well get a little head start, and then you don't have to take that test. You don't have to take those beginning courses again. Yes? I found without expecting it, that's what spiritual renewing um, that the effect it had on me. It's just that 
you know, I, I may have been dry in some areas but wasn't fully aware of it, but going up there, it just started filling me with that old familiar juice. Mm -hmm. And I just suddenly just felt so much more kind of alive and remembering mm -hmm. of what it's really about. That it's just really useful stuff like that. Well, you know, you've, you've raised a very good point, which is, you see, once you become disoriented spiritually, you make decisions that are based on keeping you disoriented. That's why it's not too good an idea to say, oh, I don't feel like going here now. I don't feel like doing this one. I don't feel like doing that one. Well, just do it because it's right. I, I mean, that's why I try to say people about Sunday service, above all, just get in the habit of coming and don't ask yourself whether you feel like coming or not. Because if you don't feel like coming and don't come, you'll never feel like coming. And if you say, oh, I don't feel like going to Spiritual Renewal Week this year, well, if you don't go, you will never feel like coming because you dry up and then you don't even remember why you wanted to do it. That's why Master said the habit of regular meditation will take you through difficult karmic tests. The habit of regular group meditation will be your protection against the onslaught of delusion because if you just are in the habit of putting yourself in the right vibrations, you will be resuscitated <laughs> instead of dehydrating to death. Right? So it's a very good comment that you made. You know, I was up there too this last week and there was something so joyful about it. It just, I sort of had to go because they put me as a Friday. I mean, I like to go anyway. I would have gone anyway. But I was teaching on Friday and so that obligated me to have to hear all the classes because as those of you who know the, the story Jeeves and the Song of Songs, where Jeeves tricks someone into singing the song Danny Boy is the fifth person on the program to sing the same song. It's a long, complicated story, but it's an in-joke. Otherwise, you don't want to sing Danny Boy for the fifth time. You need to sort of know what everyone else has done. But as a consequence, you just sit there and you just absorb all this fabulous energy. And afterwards, you remember why you love it. And the very thought, the reason you don't want to go is because you've forgotten why you, why you would go. You have to be very suspicious and not to, don't give too much to your, I feel. <laughs> I mean, I feel is okay, but I feel can also really lead you down a dark hole that you can't get out of. You know, just do things objectively according to what's duty. Now, I don't mean that to a fault. I'm just talking about if you're, if you're psychologically healthy and you're a sensible person, just as, as Sister Yanamata said, don't think about whether you like it or not, just do it. And then afterwards you'll realize why it was the right thing. Okay, 66. So while the vessels, one by one, were speaking, we're having all these little souls, are having this conversation about the nature of creation. So while the vessels, one by one, were speaking, one spied the little crescent all were seeking, and then they jogged each other, brother, brother, hark to the porter's shoulder, not a creaking. Now, Master said this is all very, uh, you know, esoteric references, to the, obviously to the spiritual eye and um, to the sound of the om, the creaking of the knot, is the om sound that the, the divine makes. The other thing that's interesting about this is that you have this little fellowship of souls all helping each other. And they're all pots. And they're all pots. <laughs> yeah. It's cute. it's cute, this little bit of pots reflecting the divine light. And you, you remember, Swami always makes such a point of the fact that Master called it self-realization fellowship, which is actually quite a contradiction in terms. But it isn't really because he was really trying to say it. We're all seeking self-realization, but in fellowship with one another because through that friendship with one another, a great deal of, of uh, progress will take place. And through helping, the act of helping one another also progresses those who help. 
And so we have this little scene where they're all, they've all been trying to figure this problem out. And then all of a sudden, one of them gets a little bit of a glimpse, and he sort of says, look, look, there's the light. And then they all scurry together. And it's just, a, it's really a charming picture. And also a very real picture. Swami was, I was listening to a tape of his recently, and he was making the comment. He was saying, the older I get, he said, the more friendship is the only thing that really matters to me. He said, all these projects and so on that I, that I keep doing, he said, it's fine, but friendship is what really counts. And elsewhere, I think it was in here, Master spoke about, because in friendship, we get to learn how to be divine. We get to learn how to be unconditionally accepting and supportive. And it's, it's friendship that teaches us our, 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 the necessity to have the patience and the kindness and the perception of soul realities that true friendship is based on. And that, that makes us into divine beings. Plus, we do the service for one another. Durga had a dreamer. Actually, I'm not sure that it was actually Durga's dream or whose dream it was. But someone at Ananda had a very interesting dream um, where they dreamt that we were, I think, somewhere in Ananda village and there was this huge circle of people. Or maybe there might have been several circles. I'm not sure which way it went. It doesn't really matter. But... Uh, and, there were, and she recognized a lot of her brothers and sisters from Ananda in that circle. And we were all together in this circle. And then every once in a while, she said, somebody would ascend. Somebody would disappear from the circle because they had become free and they, they went into the infinite. And she said, but the most moving part of the whole experience was it didn't matter. Because every time somebody ascended, you were as happy as if it was you. It just didn't make any difference. There was no feeling of, oh, I wish that were me. And there was the, the sense of, by all sort of working together in this circle, we would all eventually ascend, and each, each person's success was equally, equally belonged to all. Isn't that a dear thought? Swamiji, someone asked him about that, and he says, yes, that is what it is. But that's the spirit of friendship, true friendship, that doesn't think, oh, what about me? It thinks, oh, how wonderful for you. Genuinely. Number 67 says, Ah, with the grape my fading life provide, and wash my body whence the life has died, and in a winding sheet of vine leaf wrapped, so bury me by some garden side, some sweet garden side. Master calls this a prayer at death, or a prayer as we enter into superconsciousness and to finally sever the bondage of the ego and have the soul become free. So as, as my life is dying, bathe me in divine consciousness. As my ego is giving up, you know, let the divine take over and, uh, and, and let it uh, cleanse my body of all further human desires and wrap me in this divine consciousness that I will be free in bliss. It's just so sweet. Number 68 says, Then even my buried ashes, such a snare of perfume, shall fling up into the air, as not a true believer passing by, but shall be overtaken unaware. And this is his way of uh, writing the same poem, May I awaken thy love in all hearts. May thy love shine forever on the sanctuary of my devotion. And may I awaken thy love in all hearts. And he's just saying, once the ego is, um, once the ego has been burned up, and it's all ashes and it's gone, 
let the sweetness of the divine flowing through me, just let no one be immune to the, to the sense of what that's about. And it's just, it's a beautiful prayer to be a blessing to others. Elsewhere, I think it's in this book, but I'm not sure it is in this book. Live in such a way that your life shall be a blessing to others and the memory you leave behind will be like a sweet fragrance. It's, it's sort of interesting to just think about yourself just moving through life, coming in and out of a room, talking to people, you know, getting up in the morning, everything you do. What kind of an aura goes with you? You know, is there a sweet, fragrant perfume that causes everyone to be caught unawares and uplifted into the spirit? Or do you leave the rank stench of selfish thoughts and desires? That beautiful quotation that I, I quoted to you, we pulled it out and quoted, leaving out the, parent, the uh, remark in there, the set between the commas. You know, let all your thoughts be sweet, not the rank stench of selfishness, because <laughs> it was so sweet to say it without putting that in. But how Master actually wrote it was to draw the contrast. And so, you know, we, we, we think that the way to help people is to be on their case a lot. But really the most, you know, love changes people much more. Sometimes love is stern and emphatic, but through the years with Swamiji we have all seen that uh, because there's no question about his friendship and because he's so solidly in our camp, he can be strong when he needs to be, and it's not difficult. And you never feel, you always know that he's on your side. Just, I was contemplating just the concept of compassion recently. You know, there's so many different ways that we can react when people do things that we're not fond of. And we, we, we tend to react with an analytical judgment, some of us, analytical judgment, appraisal, you know, so on like that. Whereas many people in the world simply react with compassion. And that's really what the masters do first. Their first response to anything that happens is compassion. And then whatever uh, a response comes out after that, which may be, you know, masters can be stern and scolding or many different things. But it all, the first reaction is compassion. Whereas for so many people who have more delusion, that's not the first reaction. The first reaction is in some way related to self. You know that story in Autobiography of a Yogi when Master leaves Sri Yukteswar and goes off to be with Ram Gopal, Muzumdar, and then he comes back to the ashram and he walks back in. And Master says to Sri Yukteswar, well, I thought you'd be angry. And Sri Yukteswar says, anger comes from thwarted desire. I have no desire except your highest welfare. It was just so simple. Whereas so many people would react first. Well, I know my walking out, Master says, must have been very inconvenient for you. Yes. But, he, but Sri Yukteswar's response was compassion. And so therefore there was no self that he had to assert. It was just he felt compassion for Yogananda making a mistake. And so all of his thought was how to ease that error, not how to make himself feel better for what had happened to him. You see what a difference it is? It's just an enormous thing to work with. To, to start always first with compassion and then see what follows from that. If you have that feeling first, what would you do? Some of you just have to pretend or imitate it, but imagine it and then see what comes in. It's very fascinating. Let's take a short break. Okay, this is number 69. Indeed, the idols I had loved so long have done my credit in men's eyes much wrong. 
have drowned my honor in a shallow cup and sold my reputation for a song. I just love drowning your honor in a shallow cup. Anyway, this one is Master saying, we betray ourselves, our true self, when we live in ways that are unworthy of us. And the symbols are all, you know, some is worldly, some is divine. But the main point is we get involved in... uh, we get involved in the spiritual path in our world that people don't think so much of us anymore. You know, that's the, the honor he speaks of. I have done my credit in men's eyes much wrong, meaning when I became a spiritual person, people who, who had worldly position thought that I wasn't worth anything anymore. And so, but I, if, if I go that way and let them persuade me to, to leave the spiritual path, I have nothing. I lose everything. I've sold my reputation for a song, and it's the divine reputation we have to keep. And believe me, this is a real test that everyone has on the spiritual path. There comes a point when, you know, the test of negativity, of other people's negativity toward us, it's a recurring test, and it especially comes sort of at certain early stages where people tell you that you're crazy, and how can you be so stupid as to be doing something like this? And then they'll fill your ears with, often with, you know, really horrible things about the cult that you've gotten yourself involved with and all these horrible people. And you know, they just tell you, don't be such a fanatic. That's what I love. That's what people say. Don't be such a fanatic. Be moderate and accomplish nothing like me. That's what, you know. <laughs> you have to, I mean, so few people really give you advice that has anything to do with you. They just give you advice about them and how they want you to be in relationship to them. This this whole Vaisha thing, it makes them uncomfortable. Either they do genuinely think you're crazy, or or the people who are the most bitter against you is people who have some sense of what you're actually doing, and your life is a reproach. That's what really upsets them. Swami was so amazed in his own family. He talked about how if he'd become an alcoholic, he would have gotten more sympathy. But having, you know, become a devotee, he was just excoriated by some of his relatives because he was a reproach to them. Because, I mean, they were fine. They were, you know, they were, they donated to the Sierra Club. How could he make mockery of their efforts to be good by going to such extreme lengths? You know, so just, your friends are those who support you spiritually. And people who don't, aren't. They may be your relatives and you may owe them something, but it just don't take them too seriously. I know Swamiji once made a very interesting comment. This woman uh, in the... She wasn't living at Ananda. She was nearby, though. But she was leaving her husband after five or six years. And Swami, there was some discussion about her life situation. And, and it turns out that her husband not only was not on the path himself, but he, he actively did what he could to make it difficult for her. Like when, she, when he knew she was meditating, he turned the television up loud and things like that. Swami just, just sort of looked like this. He said, I would not have accepted it for five minutes. Just like, why? And, and you think of the story of Master and, uh, and his father when his father spoke ill of Sri Teshwar. And Master looked at his father and he said, physical birth is something, but divine birth is everything. If you say one more word against my guru, I disown you as my father forever. It's pretty unequivocal. Just, that's the way it is. There's no, we don't mess around with this. We don't try to understand your point of view. And it's an important thing to realize. I mean, seldom in our lives is it necessary to be that firm, but sometimes it is. I know, speaking of my father, my parents over the 35 years that I've been involved with Ananda 
have gone through, went, went through many different relationships with it. At first they thought it was cute and I would outgrow it, you know, so they didn't really take it very seriously. Then they were supportive, and then for a period of time they decided to be against it, then they would be supportive. I mean, I never knew really what motivated them. They became very upset when they found out we were Christian. <laughs> it was a real hard one for them, <laughs> being Jewish. I told them we were always Christian. My mother, bless her heart, who had a way of creating reality after her own heart, said, no, you weren't. <laughs> mother <laughs> anyway but my father was somehow getting sucked into this I never really was clear which parent was really the initiator on it I was I think I was 35 at that point 36 maybe I just basically said you know I don't know how to put this to you but what I essentially said is your opinion means nothing to me which is you're, you will have absolutely no influence on me. Can you understand that? You can think whatever you want. It will have no influence on me. So you can have this point of view, and then we will not get along. But it will not affect me, except that it will ruin our relationship. So why, you know, think about it. <laughs> and to his credit, he did, and he just, you know, backed off. I don't know what he really felt inside himself, but he no longer tried. Because it's like no contest. Human birth is something, but divine birth is everything. You shouldn't be cruel unless people really warrant it. I asked Swamiji, sort of like, what's the line here? He said, if people really do something that requires you to just reject them, don't hesitate to do so. But if they're just sort of your ordinary, average, obstructionist foolishness, you can live with it, but you should still stand up for yourself and just simply not allow it. It's, it's not wise. It's not wise for you because sometimes they'll strike a chord. You know, relatives have a way of finding the spot where you are weak, and you're just being so tolerant and so open-minded, and all of a sudden they've pulled you into their web of doubt. So you have to be very, very careful about it. It's not something to mess around with. Okay? And they'll respect you more. You see, that's the other part of it. People subconsciously, if you won't stand up for what you believe, that, that just proves to them all the more that it's worthless. You know, if he really believed in it, he'd fight me back. Even if they're not saying it out loud, there's a part of them. And if you really stand up for it, not in an inappropriate way, but just like, Master, you know, divine birth is everything. Don't make me choose, because there's not a contest here. It's just not, there's no contest. I don't want to choose, but don't force me to. You know, people respect that kind of strength. Sometimes when people are bullying you, the only way to, the only response is you have, the bullies respect strength. If, you, if you're weak and nice, they don't even see you. They just keep bullying you. But if, you're, if you behave like they do, which is just put up a force, then it, it works better. Number 71. And much as wine has played the infidel and robbed me of my robe of honor, well, I often wonder what the vint vintners buy. One half so precious is the goods they sell. This is such a poignant one. I skipped 70. I have a way of doing that. Well, let me do 71 then, since I'm already here. But just... Uh, for someone who's been really, who is really deep on the spiritual path, one of the very difficult things to see is to see good people get drawn away. That's why that we sing that chant, devotees may come, devotees may go, but I will be thine always. And all of us over the years have lost good friends. I don't... Lost is perhaps too big a word and people might object to it. But still, you see people who've, who've really invested themselves spiritually and then somehow lose, lose the calling and they drift away. And 
sometimes it's really quite heartbreaking. And you wonder, you know, they, they, they gave up this divine heritage and what could they possibly have gotten in return? The comforting thought is, as Master put it, once you taste nectar, stale cheese will not satisfy you for very long. And Master himself spoke of uh, souls that wandering coming back in a short while. Swami writes about it very interestingly in a place called Ananda. He says, you know, those of Master's disciples, and he was talking, I think, more about those who actually incarnated with Master, but also some of us to a, a, a large extent. He said, this particular incarnation, being with him in such a materialistic culture, and you know, uh, all of the, uh, or several of the people he brought over from India, just succumbed to the materialism of the culture. And, and Swami writes in a place called Ananda that it was too much for some of them and they got drawn away. For the first time in many lifetimes they got drawn off of the path or off of the path at the level at which they were accustomed to living it. Of course it was a necessary test that they've had to go through um, where it was, it was just too much. And, and so we also have to, to ask ourselves that question. You know, we see these different things that attract us and these different ways in which we're going to compromise. You have to ask yourself, you know, is this really worth it? What, what am I really going to get for giving up? And it's very subtle. These tests assume very subtle forms. But these, these verses, I often wonder what the vintners buy when half so precious is the goods they sell. And you just sort of repeat that question to yourself. And, and then at the moment when you're, you're the one who's about to sell your divine heritage for a mess of pottage, it'll occur to you that maybe this is not the good bargain that it appears to be. All right. Having skipped number 70. Indeed, and oh, I love this one. I'm glad you sent me back. Indeed, indeed, repentance oft before I swore. But was I sober when I swore? And then and then came spring and rose in hand my threadbare penance, penance a pieces tore. I just, when I read that, I just thought, I mean, I think that very day when I was reading this one, I had just gone through some period of time where something had happened and I was so, you know, just certain that now I had learned and I would never do it again. And then days had passed and already I just wasn't being quite so strict. <laughs> you know, why should I be quite so strict? Because... The temptation was there, the rose in hand, it all looked so good. And really, was it necessary to be so extreme? Really, what could I have been thinking? Was I entirely sober? I mean, haven't you all been through it? You just, this is how I'm going to be from this point on, but then we lose it again and again and again. It's, it's just, it was so absolutely perfectly. I, I, anyway, I loved it. Okay. And any comments? I'm assuming you'll chime in if you haven't. Now I'll go to 72. Alas, that spring should vanish with the rose, that youth's sweet-scented manuscript should close, the nightingale that in the branches sang, ah, whence and whither flown again, who knows? And this is commenting about how to other people, who don't understand the purpose of the spiritual path, renunciation seems like a, a loss of something beautiful. You know, it's like tragic that you young people are just living off in the mountains and you have so much potential and you could be doing this and you could be contributing in this way and you could be making money and doing all these things and it seems like such a loss. It doesn't look like anything 
to people because it's all inward. If you have an outwardly worldly point of view, it doesn't make any sense. Why aren't you drinking and having meat and making yourself beautiful and just doing all these things, going out and having a good time while you're young? But I remembered in this that uh, that wonderful uh, statement attributed to Gandhi where he says you should never give up a pleasure until you have replaced it the way he described it with a higher pleasure. But what he meant was renunciation should not feel like deprivation. And that's an extremely fine line. I remember Swamiji was asked once, how much discipline is enough discipline? And his answer was, that which you can do joyfully. If you've lost your joy, he said, you cranked it up too tight and you need to unwind the screw a little bit. In other words, you don't, if you're desperately longing, you really think, just think how to say it exactly, like, you, it, if you're just denying yourself something that really is pleasurable to you and you're doing it out of some sense that the more I suffer and the more tense and, and, and the more I reject, then the more God will be pleased. God is not pleased. That just makes you fanatical. Um, let's see, where did I read this? Oh, I was reading something recently and uh, Swami was talking, quoting Master and saying, let me get this straight now. Oh, that sometimes Swami was talking about this, that, that, that people would read, people do read, like about how austere St. Francis was or other of the Catholic saints or, you know, some of the Indian sadhus, just how com completely oblivious and indifferent they were to so many normal human conditions. And if you're sincere, you kind of whip yourself up and think, oh, maybe that's how I should live. Master said, only very, very advanced souls can live with that level of renunciation because they can do it joyfully. And others who try it become fanatical. They, they become so tense in the effort to hold to that that they don't really get the fruits of that renunciation. In fact, it works backwards for them, that it's much better to be moderate. And it is, if you think about it with all due respect, a certain kind of arrogance that is even attracted to doing that. I remember talking to a friend of mine um, who got very confused, very young on the spiritual path because he would read certain things in Master's writings. Well, Master says, you know, this, and Master says that. And they were things about very high levels of renunciation, things about sexuality or about, about food or, you know, just the kind of statements that he does make, which are just even in Autobiography of a Yogi, you know, sex is for the procreation and that's the only reason. And, you know... I read that, and my answer to him was, it never even occurred to me that that applied to me. I just never even thought about the fact that that might be like a real statement that related to me. I mean, now that you mention it, maybe it did, but it's just like, it just went whip right by, because why should I pick up that statement when I don't have a chance? And this poor soul, but I realized, and I had to say it honestly to him, I said, that was a very arrogant thought on your part. I mean, a very disconnected thought. You know, just, oh, here's, this is what the, the real great souls will do, so that's what I'm going to do. Instead of having any real sense of attunement with oneself. When we, when we lived in the monastery, there was a, a group of us who did it because we loved it. It made us so happy to live that way. And then there was a lot of other girls who came in and out, and it was very good for them to do it. But they were doing it because it was a good idea for them to do it, for the most part. Or they were happy in it for a while, but then they lost their happiness in it. I mean, ultimately, all of us lost our happiness in it. 
But it was so interesting because I would see people come in who would say, well, it says in the books that we have to be renunciates eventually, so I could be renunciate, so I think I'll be renunciate. But it all came out of reading it first and then trying to impose it on their lives instead of feeling it first and then looking for the way to express it. You see the difference? And so it's... Uh, uh, when you're, re when you're renunciate in the right way, whatever level, whether it's external or internal, it, you do it because you feel so much better. This Swamiji defined it in the Letters to Truth Seekers. He says, this then to me is renunciation, to kick aside all limitation and to embrace infinity. Now that's not how most people see it, but see all those things that people think that you're renouncing, what you're really doing is there are limitations on your freedom, so you throw them away. You're embracing something huge. But one of the reasons we don't have a formal monastery at Ananda at this time is that Swamiji says, we all, we all keep falling back into the old model. And we see renunciation in terms of restriction instead of seeing renunciation in terms of expansion. And he says, as long as the, the thought form keeps going that way, it's, he, he, we're just not able to really get it started again. And you see what's happened even at SRF. They've just sunk right back into that Catholic thought form of restriction. And that's not really renunciation. Renunciation is to get rid of your limitations, not to, you know, get rid of the things you really want and see how much I'm suffering for God. It's, it's a very important difference. You have to work with yourself in that, too. You know, if you're not joyful, then you're, you're tightening the screw too much. And, of course, if you're not doing anything, you should tighten the screw a little, that's all. <laughs> okay, number 73. Ah, love, could thou and I with fate conspire to grasp this sorry scheme of things entire? Would not we shatter it to bits and then remold it nearer to the heart's desire? It's so sweet. This is the compassion of the realized soul. Oh, poor saps, what a mess creation is. And now we see from our perspective, you know, how difficult and how they've wandered. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could just make it easier for all of them? It's a very sweet statement, but of course it doesn't work. <laughs> but uh, then, Master, I, I wrote a little note here. I said, you should make a note and read this commentary when the world is getting you down. Because the, the story that Master tells here about just how how beautiful creation really is because the end point of it all is bliss for everyone. And see, that's, Brenda, that's what we were talking about. We look at people and we say, oh, they're suffering so much. And we get very nervous. Oh, they're suffering. We have to do something because they're suffering. But they're not suffering. They're becoming free. I had a very interesting, this is directly to our conversation, I had a very interesting realization about myself because I've always had a great desire to help people, and that has often translated into a desire to fix their lives. And being a person of great willpower and resourcefulness and energy, oftentimes I could really take on the project of fixing their lives. You don't get really way too engaged in it. And you, you can also, if you have a lot of willpower, you can sustain people with your willpower. You can help them make things happen, but they're not really making it happen. You're making it happen for them. All these are very complex lessons that you know, you learn over time. What I'm talking, a lot of that was, thank God, mostly quite a while ago. But I still would retain this, what I can only call anxiety, when I would see people suffer. And I would see people face very difficult tests, and it would, it would make me very, very nervous. And, and I would become afraid. I would become afraid for them. And then once I was reflecting, and, and I don't mean to be presumptuous in this, because... 
I, I have plenty of fear. But, but in general, I'm not afraid of what God might do to me. I don't sort of hang around worrying about what God is going to do to me. Because I pretty figure, pretty much figure, that whatever he does to me, he will also, the, the instructions for solving it and the capacity to do it will be included in the whole package. And even if I project myself into really horrific situations, which one does sometimes either because your mind has gotten away from you or because one does it just to, to test it out. You know, if something really frightens me, sometimes I try to go into it instead of shirking away from it. So I realized it's just like, whatever happens to me will happen to me and it'll be okay. And then I thought, you know, you respect yourself enough to believe that, but you look at other people and you think they can't cope with their own karma? And all of a sudden I thought, boy, and you're, you're doing this like because you care about them? And what you're really saying is that they can't even cope with what God has given them? I have to just chew my nails and worry about whether they can live through their own karma? And now I can live through mine, of course, but they pot certainly can't live through theirs. You, you see how really, like, how twisted the mind has become? How ego-oriented how ego that thought is? It's all masking as this great sense of compassion, but it's really an enormous sense of pride. They'll never make it without me. Unless I help them, how will they ever get through? Poor saps, they can't possibly cope without me. Right? Where is God in all of that? Where is truth in all of that? I realize that also with my parents. Because they're the, my, my mother's Parkinson's and my father's um, manifesting Alzheimer's made the last couple of years of my mother's life really memorable. Really memorable. Some of you were here. I was virtually commuting to Southern California. And it was tough. You know, it was a very, a very, it was a good situation because I now understand what a lot of people have to go through because I went through it. But I too was just like, I was so upset about their karma. And then first of all, I realized that they were not upset about their karma like I was because it was their karma. It felt natural to them. It, wouldn't, it wasn't natural to me because it wasn't mine, it was theirs. And again, it was like, they're not divine souls. This isn't happening for a purpose. You know, do you see what I mean? It was all about me, guys, in the guise of being about them. So it's it's very this section, the 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 vibration that comes through this. It's like a a piece of music that is written in this particular commentary, just sort of building up to this beautiful. The chords come in and the different aspects of creation, and they all work together. And isn't it a wonderful plot? And how could it happen any other way except it's really happening? And by the end, you just feel what a glorious creation this is. It's it's very powerful, and really worth reading over and over for that reason. Now we are in the last two the ones that some of us know. This one is, Ah, moon of my delight, who knows no wane. The moon of heaven is rising once again. How oft hereafter rising shall she look through this same garden after me in vain. Isn't that glorious? Nothing can be said. Omar has made an absolute escape, Master says. <laughs> the illusion goes on. The moon of heaven of this world just rises again and again. But no matter where it looks, he's, he's out of it forever. This is the promise of our lives. And then the very last chapter. And when thyself, and he gives us a capital T in this one. This is not the divine, this is us. And when thyself with shining foot shall pass among the guests, star scattered on the grass, and in thy joyous errand, 
reached the spot where I made one, turned down an empty glass. Ah, perfect final. And that phrase which I said at the very beginning, where I made one, actually means where I became one with the infinite. And the empty glass means there's no, there's no bubble, there's just the sea. There's no separate ego. We've been turned it over, it's not defined separately anymore. And then he, he talks too about, you know, that the liberated soul comes to help others. And Omar Khayyam describes it as a joyous errand. And that was the errand that he was on. His was the joyous errand to help all of us as we sat star-scattered on the grass. Just the whole picture of, again, you just sort of see these little bubbles of light. Each of us encased in our little egos and our little leelas and such a little drama. But we're just these really, these bubbles of light just scattered like gemstones on the grass. And these liberated souls just come wafting through on the joyous errand of trying to say, you know, you could get out of here. You could get free. Come with me. Come with me. And then Omar Khayyam says also, and then there's the place where the soul that was me merged with the infinite and will never return. Isn't that glorious? So, that's the story. Thus we have finished. Let me find the phrase exactly. How does he put it? Here begins an adventure such as, such as you have never known before. So here ends the adventure. <laughs> or I should say, here begins the adventure of God-realization. Thank you all very much. Okay.